you say today if you hear your voice we should listen so I pray that since it is today um, that we would listen open our ears hearts, minds to take in all that you have for us speak to us we pray in Jesus name Amen turn please to Hebrews in chapter 3 Hebrews in chapter 3 I want to read verses 6 through 19, Hebrews 3, 6 through 19, please. Hear the word of God. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house indeed, if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confession firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? What is not, was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now, if we're going to understand this uh, book of Hebrews, and we must, uh, we're going to need to, to understand this particular passage. It isn't that we shouldn't understand all of it because we need to. It isn't that we shouldn't understand the whole Bible because we need to. But this particular passage is is really pivotal, I think, in our understanding of this book. And I want this morning to distinguish, uh, as we come to it, between the theme of Hebrews and the purpose for which the author of Hebrews wrote it. Right? I want to distinguish between its theme and purpose. And I don't do that to make us Bible scholars. I do that so that we would better be able to listen to God. Better be able to hear, better able to hear his voice, because you see, as we read the scripture, what we're doing is listening to God speak to us. Um, you'll notice back in chapter one, for instance, verse one, the author of Hebrews writes, "Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us." By his son. So during the days of the prophets, it was the prophets who spoke, and the prophets who spoke to the people. And so when the people were listening to the prophets speak, they were hearing God. Now, after that prophet and those people died, the way that succeeding generations listened to the prophets and thus to God was because those prophets wrote down what they said. And so when we read those words of those prophets throughout the Old Testament, we're reading the very word of God. We're re listening to God speak to us. And then it says, in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. 
And so for those people who are alive during the days of Jesus, listen to Jesus speak. And when they heard Jesus speak, they heard God. He was speaking the very word of God. He was the very Son of God, the very Word of God. In fact, interestingly, when people saw Jesus, they heard God. Because everything he did was communication of who God is. That's the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature. And so what Jesus did spoke about who God is. And so when people listened to Jesus and saw Jesus, they heard God. And the way that we now hear Jesus by what he said and did is that he appointed various ones to write about that. And they put it in a book in the Bible, in the New Testament. And other apostles came along after to teach that which he wanted communicated to us. So when we read the scripture, what we're hearing is God. Even the author of Hebrews says it, verse 7 of the passage I read says, Today, if you hear his voice, I'm sorry, I missed it, verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice. Now, that little section that begins today if you hear his voice is Psalm 95. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, when you read Psalm 95, what you're hearing is God. It's the Holy Spirit speaking. And so my intent here is to help us to be able to listen to God better by distinguishing between theme and purpose. That's my little explanation for taking you on a little academic tour. Because you see, listening is an acquired skill. As a husband, I know that well. I've been told that often marriage counselors, in fact, tell me they spend a great deal of time helping couples listen to one another because it doesn't necessarily come naturally to us. Children and parents need to learn to listen to us, and they do. Usually the older child informs the younger children something like, oh, Dad doesn't really mean that. I know it's what he said, but it really isn't what he means. Or at other times, the older ones will say, Dad really means that. I know it didn't sound like it, but trust me. Why? Because that older child, well-schooled, has learned how to listen to, to dad in those instances. Students learn how to listen to professors. After a while, if you've had a teacher or professor for long enough, you can think that's going to be on the test. I just know it. I heard that. I know that's going to be on the test. Other times you go, that's not going to be on the test. I mean, just listening. It's an acquired skill. Not just simply what is said, but what is really meant by that. And we have to acquire this skill of learning to listen to God. And we learn to listen to God by reading his book. And so it isn't that we just sort of read it like we read the newspaper. It's that we really need to read it and understand it and listen critically and listen honestly and listen with our hearts, if you will, to hear the very word of God. And when I say listen critically, I don't mean to criticize it, but to be disciplined in our listening of God's word. In fact, just as an aside... That's one of the reasons why the church in our country has always been uh, prone to help out with literacy programs. In fact, Sunday schools were originally developed in order to teach kids how to read. Brought the kids in the community together on Sundays, first and foremost, to teach them how to read. Why? Not to make them better citizens, though they would do that. Not to help them uh, be better uh, economically as they grew up though it would do that, being able to know how to read. But they knew that the way God speaks to us is through a book, and therefore it will be most helpful for the children to learn how to read. And of course they used the Bible in teaching them how to read, so they killed two proverbial birds with one stone in all of that. 
Moses said, these are not idle words to you. This is your life. The psalmist said that this word is a lamp unto your feet, a light unto your path. There's no life, there's no light unless we're listening, hearing God as he speaks to us. By way of his word, Jesus said, those who hear these words of mine and do them will be like the wise man who builds his house on a rock. The Apostle Paul writes about this word that it's sufficient to make us wise unto salvation. Life is here. Why? Because it's the very voice, the very word of God. And so as we come here, I want us to be able to hear what God is saying. Now to do that, I think, it will be helpful for you to understand the author's theme and then also to understand the author's purpose. Now, the theme of something, of something that's written, is its main subject. It's the takeaway. It's, it's what you're really supposed to get out of this. It's, 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 it's that subject matter topic that the author is writing about. And in the, in, in, in the book of Hebrews, its theme is the supremacy of Christ. That Christ is greater than everyone and everything. That's what we're to take from this. We're to take away from this that Christ is supreme over everything, so much so that we should trust him with our eternal destiny. Not only with our eternal destiny, which is the great thing, but also the smaller thing, is that we should trust him with today and tomorrow and the next day. That every day through the course of our lives we should be trusting him. Why? Because there's no one else like him. He's greater than all that there is. In chapter 1 we saw of his deity and we found that the definitive word from God to us was in his son. And the reason that that definitive word would come is because he's been appointed the heir of all things. He's the creator of all that is. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. He sustains everything in the universe by the word of his power. He's the one who's made purification for sins. He's the one, therefore, who's been exalted and sits the right hand of majesty on high. He's the one who's been given a name that trumps every other name. And so we're to, to trust him, to place our whole destiny in him. And not only that, not only is he God, but he's God in the flesh. And therefore he does for us, as us, exactly what we need. That he's been made like us in every way, so that he could make propitiation for our sins, so he could die for our sins and satisfy God's wrath against us. And in doing so, he's the very one who's destroyed the power of the one who who is over death, Satan himself, so that we can die well without fear because the sting of death is gone. And thus we can live well because we're no longer enslaved to the fear of death. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. He's the apostle, that is, he's been the one sent by God to us. And he's our high priest. He's the one who represents us to God. And he does all of that perfectly, of course. Therefore, he's faithful. Therefore, we can trust him. Therefore, he is true. So we're to place our entire destiny within him. This is going to be a recurring theme throughout the book of Hebrews. This is the very theme. This is the takeaway. If we miss the fact that Christ is the one to be supremely trusted, that no one else is even on the same page with him, that we'll miss hearing God. You want to say, what's God speaking to us? He's saying, Christ is supreme. Trust him. That's his name. But now we come to the purpose. 
Because you see, as we've been working our way through so far, the theme has been really clear. And the purpose has been alluded to. But in this particular passage, I think, at least I, am shocked by his purpose. Because you see, the purpose of a writing is the reason for which the author wrote it, what motivated him in order to write it. He's writing about the supremacy of Christ, but why? This isn't just a dictionary entry where the author of Hebrews was commissioned to write a a dictionary entry under the title uh, Hebrews, Supremacy of Christ. It, It wasn't that that motivated him. There was something else, something he saw within this community of people, something he saw in the people to whom he was writing, something he saw in those who would read this letter first and foremost, that he says, I need to tell them about the supremacy of Christ. There's something going on there where if they don't hear about the supremacy of Christ, I don't know what's going to happen. And so you see, his purpose for writing is is the reason he wrote about the supremacy of Christ. What was going on there? Turn to chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? You get the impression that after he's told them about the greatness of Jesus, he's done that. That's why he says, therefore, because he sees something. He sees perhaps there are some in the community drifting away. He sees perhaps there are some in the community who are neglecting this great salvation. So he says, I need to tell you about the supremacy of Christ and his greatness, that he's trustworthy, that he's the one to go to at all times. He's the one to cling to. It's that confession to which you should hold because he's seeing people who've made that profession now drift away. People he knows will read this letter because they're part of that community. But yet he's wondering, are they drifting? Are they neglecting? And he sounds this great warning that he said, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We'll escape what? Well, he says here that since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how will we escape the just retribution if we neglect the salvation? The salvation is the only way to escape the wrath of God. And he knows that. And thus he looks at this community of people who have professed faith in Christ and he sees some perhaps drifting, neglecting. And he's saying, listen, i got to tell you, if you drift out, if you neglect it, you won't escape that. Then, in chapter 3, where we ended last Sunday, beginning in the middle of verse 6, he says, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. He said, listen, I I need to throw in this if for you. If you're going to be one who is part of the household of God, you understand it's it's a situation where you're continuing to hold fast to your faith. If you're not holding fast to your faith, I I can't give you assurance that, that you're part of his house because those who are part of his house are those who hold fast to the faith. And so he gives them that that warning as well, the guts of this passage that I read you this morning, verse 12. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. See, listen, 
I'm concerned for you. It appears as if there are some whose hearts are evil, unbelieving, and you're falling away from God. You've made a profession of your faith, but now I see that's not sticking, and I'm worried about you. So, so that's the reason I'm writing, to, to, so that you'll take care, and I'm going to tell you about the supremacy of Christ so you'll trust, but I, but I can't leave out the warning. Verse 13, then, he says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He said, listen, I understand how sin works. I understand how it deceives. I understand how it turns your head. I understand how it leads you away from trusting in Christ. And, and you have to understand that if you drift away, if you neglect this, then a hardening begins. And, and, and if that hardening takes over, then, then I have to tell you that I'm worried for your soul. And then he goes on, verse 14. For if we share in Christ, I'm sorry, for we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confession firm to the end. And so he's saying his purpose here is to tell them that Christ is supreme so that they'll continue to persevere in the faith. I mean, that, that's his, his purpose all throughout this letter. Just a couple of other stepping stones. Uh, chapter 6 and verse 11. He tells them quite clearly, he says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He, he says, that's what I really want. I, I really want to drag you on through. I want to make sure that you persevere to the end. I want to make sure that you don't, you don't stop now. But I'm, I'm looking at you and I'm worried that perhaps some of you are stopping and I, I want to let you know that you need to continue. Um, chapter 10. In verse 23, he says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. I want you not to waver. I'm afraid some of you are wavering, and I don't want you to waver, so let me tell you about Christ so that, so that you won't waver, so that you'll hold fast. That's his intent, that's his purpose uh, in writing. Chapter uh, 10, verse 35, just down the page, he says to them, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Don't, 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 don't throw away your hope in Christ. I know times are tough, but don't throw away your hope. There'll be a great reward coming. Chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He says, let's get on with it. Don't stop. Let's get on with it. Don't be deterred. Let's get on with it. Keep running this race. See, that's his purpose. His purpose is to help them persevere to the end. Because he knows that being a Christian isn't something that we're to be today and not tomorrow. That being a Christian is a transformation of life. That being a Christian, yes, begins with an initial coming to faith, if you will. But then it isn't a stopping. It's that that faith in Christ then informs your very life and defines who you are. And you continue to walk with him. And of course, this is no new idea to the author of Hebrews. It's been throughout all the Bible. God calls people to follow him in the Old Testament. And he says, keep on, keep on, keep on. Don't give up. In fact, for Jesus, it's very serious business as well. If you're quick, turn to Matthew uh, chapter 24, one sentence, verse 13. Matthew 24, verse 13. Jesus says, But the one who endures to the end will be saved. He's been talking about great persecution coming on, on people, and you'd think 
that sympathetically he'd say, I know this is a really a tough situation and these kinds of things happen. So if you kind of poop out in the middle, although I, maybe there's not a Greek word for that. Um, uh, if, if you get tired in the middle and, and you fade away, you drift away, I'll understand. But he doesn't say that. He speaks to them of very difficult times. And he says, I want you to understand it's the ones who endure to the end, who maintain faith to the end. They're the ones who are saved. These are the ones who fall away. The seriousness of following Jesus was a mark of his teaching. Turn to Luke in chapter 9, please. In verse 23. Luke 9, verse 23. And he, the he there is, Jesus. And he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He says, listen, this isn't a last week kind of thing. This isn't a next month kind of thing. This is a today kind of thing. So I want, if you want to follow me, to take up your cross daily. And, of course, everyone knew what Jesus was speaking about when he said, take up your cross. Crosses weren't jewelry pieces in those days. They weren't window adornments in those days. They weren't symbols of anything that was good as it is today for us as believers. It's a symbol of something that's a blessing to us, the cross. But for them, it was a symbol of death. They knew that if a cross was taken up, somebody was going to die. There was no other reason to take up a cross. It would be just the same way as saying, take up your electric chair or your lethal injection or your hangman's noose. I mean, you say that, that's an image of death. So if you want to follow me, then every day you have to understand your mind. And you've died to you. You've died to everything. You kill off everything. You die to everything that isn't of me. And you follow me. That's what it means to follow me. Deny yourself and follow me. Turn to Luke in chapter 9. Same chapter, verse 57. As they were going along the roads, someone said to him, and that him there is Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to them, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And he said, Those are such hard sayings. And Jesus knew they were hard sayings. That's why he said them. And that's why he said them that way. He said, he said them that way in order to, to wake us up to what it really means to follow him. That nothing should deter us in our following him. Not even the normal good things perhaps of life. But all those are submitted to him. And we're to follow him. Turn to Luke. And chapter 14. And verse 28. Well, let me begin with verse 25. This is a very difficult few verses. I don't have time to lay them out, but, but hear them. Verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus is saying, listen. But he wasn't commanding that we hate our children or hate our spouses or hate our parents. And the scripture says we're to love them. But what he's saying, 
very dramatically is that your allegiance is to me. And you love them as I would have you love them. And if ever there is a split between the two, if ever they would come between you and me, you're to follow, you're to follow me. That's what it means to follow after Christ. And so you can tell the dismay of the author of Hebrews if he looks at a company of people, a community of people, and he sees some drifting away, some for whom their profession of faith is not as important as it once was, some who are thinking, well, this following Jesus isn't necessarily my only hope. You can see the danger that he could see in the midst of that community because Jesus goes on in verse 28 here and he says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you, who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus is saying, I know what I'm asking. My question is, do you know what I'm asking? I don't want you to be prudent. I want you to count the cost. I want you to understand. This isn't the kind of thing I want you to make some sort of emotional response to. I want it to be a heart, thoughtful response. I want you to understand what I'm calling you to is to be my disciple. You need to turn away everything that isn't of me and follow me. I want you to count that cost. Thus the author of Hebrews knows that. And so he can't just simply leave and not say anything when he sees something very troubling in their lives. And so the purpose for which he writes, what we need to hear God saying to us through him, is that there will be things that distract you along the way in following him. Don't be distracted. There are things which, if they do distract you and lead you away, will mean that you won't escape and you won't enter into the eternal rest of God. So be careful. Now every time we talk about these kinds of things, the question comes up as well, it probably should, and that is this. Can Christians have any assurance at all in their salvation? I mean, can we think that we can unprofess as quickly as we profess? I mean, or, or is it sort of 90-10, or is it 99-1, or is it 50-50, or, or what's the deal here? I mean, how worried do I need to be about this? This may be something that troubles you personally. You may be one who struggles deeply with the assurance of your own salvation. Oh, if asked, you can give a wonderful profession of faith because you do believe, but still deep in you by way of personality or whatever. Do you struggle with that? Do I really belong to Christ? Maybe that this was something that the church you grew up in spoke a lot about one way or the other. Place the great emphasis here on this whole idea of assurance, pro or con. And that's always stuck with you and you've always wondered. It may be that you are at a point in the context of your life where you're, you're thinking, I've just given up on assurance. I'm just going to keep believing in Jesus and hope for the best. Even though subjectively I don't feel necessarily attached to God or I don't feel like I belong to Him, but I'm going to keep believing because, well, I know that's, that's right. And it may be that you're quite logical about this. You begin to think, well, doesn't the Bible say 
that God has chosen some to be his. Is that true or not? So if he's chosen some to be his, wouldn't they be his? And why would they have to worry if they're his? After all, he did it chosen. Isn't salvation God's work, you might think? And if Christ made propitiation for our sins and God is no longer angry with me uh, and there's no case against me in heaven, then, then why should I worry about whether I'm drifting or not drifting or any of that? Because if there's no case against me, there's no case against me. And you may even begin to think, aren't there many, many passages that are aimed at giving me assurance so that I can continue to live with a sense that, yes, I do belong to God? And, of course, the answer to that question is yes, there are passages throughout the scripture that give us that great impression. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Well, do I have it or don't I? I mean, I believe. Does that mean I have eternal life? Or is it just sort of penciled in? Is it just provisional? Is it sort of the kind of life that can fade in and out depending on the strength of my faith? John chapter 5 and verse 24. He says, Jesus does, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Well, I believe. Do I have it or don't I? Is it permanent or is it just transitory? Or, well, I only know when I get to the end of this journey, chapter 6 and verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I, I will never cast out. We think, okay, I've come to Jesus. Am I in? Because if I'm in, it sounds like he won't cast me out. And if he won't cast me out, why then is the author of Hebrews scaring me like this? John chapter 10. This will be my last one on these. John chapter 10, verse 27. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. All right? Does that mean that I follow for a while, and then there's you know, a fork in the road, and as Yogi Berra says, I take it, and, uh, and, I, and, I, and I don't know if I'm really following or not at that point. I gave them eternal life, he says. Well, did he give eternal life or not? It says he did, therefore, I, shouldn't I bank on that? But if I should bank on that, why is the author of Hebrews so worried? So passionate about that. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That makes me feel good, but could I jump? Uh, verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. It's kind of a two-fisted assurance there. Jesus' hand, father's hand. Can I bank on them holding me tight so that I won't fall away? And if I can bank on them holding me tight, then why is the author of Hebrews so sincerely worried that some in the community are drifting away. Well, because of this. Because at all times and in all places, there are those who make a profession of faith. And that faith, profession of faith, isn't really sincere. You see, we're not saved by a profession, we're saved by the work of Christ in us. And so the author of Hebrews comes with this warning, simply giving true statements by saying this. He's saying, listen, we share in Christ if we hold our original confession firm to the end. That's a true statement. What else would you say about a Christian? Would you say a Christian is one who believed one day and now no longer believes? No, that doesn't ring well. So he simply makes this true statement. And he says, I want you to know 
church. I want you to know that if that you share in Christ, if you hold that original confession to the end, that original confession being uh, an announcement, a confession of your own sin, and a trust in the work of Christ. He says, if you hold that firm to the end, then you, you really do share in Christ. That's evidence that you that you share in Him. Don't, don't drift away from that. And think, well, how can I drift away from that if I'm in that? And He knows this, you see. He knows that there's all kinds of things in the context of life that come against us to tempt us to trust in someone, something other than Christ. And He knows that there are times in the life of a Christian that one can drift away. That one can drift from that truth. He sees it. But he also knows this, that if he warns them and he tells them the truth of Christ, they'll come back. He's heard of it before. Turn to 1 John in chapter 2. 1 John in chapter 2, verse 18. The Apostle John writes this. He says, children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. Verse 19, they, those who are against Christ, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they're not of us. What in the world is John talking about? He's talking about a group of people who are part of the community. Presumably those who had made professions of faith. And then he says they went out from us. And that proves something. That they really weren't ever of us. And then he goes on to say this, verse 20. But you, that is you're different, you who have stayed. But you have, an, an, you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it. Because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, that is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he's made to us eternal life. He says, believe. Continue to believe. It's a true statement that if you don't continue to believe, you won't escape. And so he says, believe knowing that if you're really born again, you'll believe, you'll continue to believe, you'll continue to walk in the faith because while it's a true statement to say that if you don't, you won't, it's not a true statement to say that if you're a Christian, you'll never sin. Or if you're a Christian, you'll never doubt. Or if you're a Christian, you'll never struggle in your faith. And that's part of this journey that we're on. And he knows that. But he also knows that if one is struggling in faith and one is drifting away and one is in sin, that if that person's really a believer, he'll go, he'll go to that person and warn them. And that warning will have its effect. And they'll come back. They won't leave. They'll stay because they have this anointing from the Holy One that keeps them safe. 
Let me give you an illustration. I've used it before, and if you've heard this before, that means you were in service. One of the services about three or four weeks ago when I used it, I can't remember which service I used it in, so I'm going to use it again to cover everybody. But you've probably heard me use this one before because it's my favorite one in this deal, and so if you've heard it before, then fine. I'm going to use it again. I'm less creative in my old age, and so I'm just going to use it again. And it comes from a time in my life when I was teaching economics at university, some of you are going, oh, I know this one, so you can click out for the next three minutes. Teaching economics at university, and one of the things I loved to do in those days, I had the honor, and it was an honor, to team teach an honors class with a philosophy professor and a sociology professor. We didn't always see eye to eye, but I grew a beard that semester, so I fit in. Uh, but um, uh, you know, see those pictures. But the, um, um, uh, I taught this class with him. And it was an honors class, so you had to have a very high GPA in order to get in it. Generally, 8, 10, maybe 12 at the most, but usually 8 to 10 students were in it. The best students in the whole social science department. And they were great kids, and they were, they were um, uh, kids that were competitive academically, uh, always did very well. Uh, they were obsessive-compulsive. Uh, you just knew that about them when you looked at them. Uh, and there they were in this class. And I used to love to give the opening lecture because I would always say this. I would say to them, this is going to be the hardest class you're ever going to take. Because it was. We, we designed it that way, being who we were. Um, and I said, it's going to be the hardest class you take. And if you don't keep up with the assignments and you don't keep up with the reading and you don't come to class, you're not going to do well. Now, when you say that to that particular group of people, all the hearts stop. It's like, I've always done well. What do you mean I won't do well? You know? And I love to say that because I knew that when I said that, that meant they all would do well. I would give them that warning because I knew their hearts. And I knew that, that warning would just sink deep within them and scare them right back into their books. And I would give that little lecture, we all would, uh, throughout the semester because there were times, of course, during the course of a semester when there were, kind, there were things that come against a student and take away their time or, or they stop sort of believing that you really meant that and they think they really can glide. And so we'd go to a student who, who may be sort of gliding, drifting, and after a week or so you could tell they hadn't been in class or they hadn't turned in assignments or they weren't participating well in the discussion and all of that. And we'd normally sneak up to them in the hall as we were wont to do with our little beardedness and, and kind of go up to them and say, you know, I've noticed you're not doing so well and I'm really worried about your grade. You might get a C. And it would just freak them out. And they would study uh, and you know, if you could take stock in no dose and coffee, you would have made a fortune because that kid was going to be, you know, not sleeping for a week because you just knew their hearts. We see, there's the same sense in which the warnings of Scripture come to us as believers. There are all kinds of things that can come against us. In fact, the author of Hebrews mentions this whole point in verse 13, he says, But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So he understands that in this world, sin is alive. And, 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 and the way that sin works is to deceive. Sin is one big lie, right? Coming from the one big liar, Satan. And sin is what is there to turn our heads away from Christ. Sin comes to us and says things like, surely God won't forgive you, not for that sin. In order to be forgiven for that sin, here's the things you have to do. And so then we get to work and we say, well, okay, I'll do this and this and this and this and this and, this and hope. I'll put my hope in that, that God will forgive me. 
And of course, that's a great insult to God, who's given his son already to pay for that sin. But he says, I can't take that. That's just simply not enough. But enough has already been paid. Won't you believe? But sin comes and says, oh, I can't be forgiven for that. Sin comes to us in the midst of circumstances that are very difficult. We've all experienced difficult circumstances, others more than perhaps another, but still we've experienced those difficulties. And when those difficulties arise, sin comes and speaks into our minds. The thing is like, if God really loved you, this wouldn't be happening to you. We begin to turn our hope away from Christ, thinking, well, my goodness, that must be true. How could Christ be for me if this happened to me? Why should I be for him if this is going to happen to me? And so those feelings of bitterness and thoughts of bitterness begin to enter our minds, and this hardness begins to develop, and what's going to happen? The author of Hebrews says, I know that when I come to someone who's really a believer in Christ, and I warn them at that point, and I say, but consider Jesus. Think about his greatness and who he is. I know that believer will come back, perhaps ashamed, perhaps sorrowful, most likely, but still return, still come back. But if that person really is the believer, that hardness will take over and it will just simply prove what is in the heart already. Sin comes to us in various situations and says, you know, God can't give you, Jesus won't give you in this life what you really want. He won't give you uh, sexual freedom like you desire. It's, it's way too confining. You won't be happy. You won't be satisfied in what he says. He, he won't meet your needs financially because, because he's, he's telling you to give. He, he's telling you to sacrifice. He, he's telling you that that really doesn't matter, that, that life is more than, than just what you accumulate. But, but, but don't you want to accumulate? I mean, I mean, won't that satisfy you? Jesus, he won't guarantee you'll get enough. And your health, you're going to die. He's in charge of all that, isn't he? And, and yet you're still going to die. And look around you, people that you know who are firm believers, who, who died in the faith and suffered as they've suffered. Do you, do you really want to trust him with that part of your life? The author of Hebrews knows that. He knows that those kinds of pressures, those kinds of, of, of temptations come because of the deceitfulness of sin. And he's saying, I'm seeing in some of you that your faith isn't holding fast. So I want to warn you. Because he's thinking, now what will affect this return? What will get them to come back? Well, I can tell them the greatness of Jesus. And yes, that's my theme. I, that should get them to come back. But, but attached to that, I need to attach this truth that warns them that says, if you don't come back, you won't escape. So hold fast. Don't give up. I often think and share with people that when I die and meet the Lord, if he tells me that I need anything other than Jesus, I'm sunk. I really can't think of anything else I could possibly put my hope in uh, as a counter-argument uh, to say, okay, if Jesus doesn't work, how about this? Because I simply need what Jesus did. I, I simply need someone to pay for my sin. I, I understand the holiness of God. I, I understand that that without Christ I'll be condemned as, well, I should be the justice of God. For he's holy and he should, has every right to do that and, and should. It's only by his grace that someone else took my place. So there I am. 
You see, the reason that, that the author of Hebrews is so intent on all this is because it's sort of deja vu. He's listened to God speak about this before. He quotes Psalm 95. By the way, this is going to be a long sermon, so just hang on. I got ten more minutes, and then we'll do communion, and, you know, just hang on. It's summer. There's no Sunday school. So I just always figure I have more time. And you need this this week. Like, you won't need it next week, but you may not need it next week, but I'll still do it. But the... Um, um, but this is important because this is a pivotal passage. I want you to see all of this so the rest of Hebrews makes sense to you. But he sees this in, in history. He sees that God has spoken to this before. That's why he, he, he quotes Psalm 95. So we could read it in Hebrews, but I want you to see the whole thing. Turn to Psalm 95. I, I read the first part of Psalm 95 as your call to worship this morning. If you were here and you heard that. But I, I want you to see it in the context of this whole psalm. Psalm 95, verse 1. He says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. You see, the psalmist is doing exactly what the author of Hebrews is pattering himself after. He's telling us about how great God is. And He's telling us because of the greatness of God, He's made us His. What could be better than that? And so then he goes on, and if you don't understand what he's doing, it's almost like a non sequitur in the psalm, because after he says all that great stuff about we're God's sheep, he says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Why does he say that? Because he's saying, I understand that sin is around every corner. It's deceitful. It's going to try to lure you away. I've told you how great God is. Hang your heart there. Don't budge from that. So make sure your heart isn't hard. Because there was an instance where hearts were hard. He says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to, to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, there are a people who go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And what's he speaking of? Quickly, Exodus and chapter 17. An incident in ancient Israel, or the ancient Israelites before they became a nation. Exodus chapter 17 and verse 1. He says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Here's the scene. They had not too long before this time left Egypt. They had been slaves, you remember, the Israelites for 400 years, cried out to God. He heard them, sent Moses. They saw, they experienced what we've only read about, and that is these ten plagues, most especially this last judgment, where the eldest son of the Egyptian families died. Now, I don't know how to get us emotionally there, but that would have been a very emotional moment, very emotional time, where the people would have been abuzz with all of that. They were 
they left Egypt, everybody among the Israelites were healed. Young people, old people, all in good shape leaving Egypt. They plundered the Egyptians, they had the wealth of Egypt with them after having been slaves for 400 years. And they're taken on this journey following God. They knew it was God because there was a cloud and fire that always led them. And you remember, they were taken to where this sea was, the Red Sea. Miraculous is the sea parting. The river bottom dried out. I mean, the other day I couldn't even walk through my backyard. Is he? And it only had water on it for like a little while. But this is a river bottom that dried out sufficiently that two million people and all this stuff they had could walk across it. It was like a paved highway must have been. That hard. And then the Egyptian army came got in the middle of all that, and the rivers, the river came back together and they all died. God saved them. They worshipped. So then they, God took them to a place where there was no food. And he fed them miraculously. They woke up in the morning. There was all this really good stuff all over the ground. All they had to do was pick it up, this manna. And then they wanted a more balanced diet, so he sent them quail. And so God had, had met all these needs in the midst of the people miraculously. And again, you have to keep in mind, this isn't just Moses and his buds. This is two million people. That's a lot of people. And God was feeding them and caring for them and all of that. And so now he takes them to a place where there's no water. And he wondered what should their response be, verse 2. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And I empathize with them. I mean, it's, I'm sure they were thirsty. Having no water is a dangerous place to be as a human being. And to think you don't need enough water for one person, we need enough water for two million of us. And so that's more than just a little, you know, little jug you'll buy at the 7-Eleven. So they said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They were saying, we'd rather go back to Egypt, because at least there we were slaves, but alive, here we're going to die. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, take it with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I'll stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Now that's just an amazing thing, isn't it? Again, we're not talking about creating a little water fountain with a little button so people can just sort of get a little sick. This is water out of a rock enough to, to quench the thirst of two million people. That's a lot of water. Moses did so in the sight of the elders, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? You see, that's the danger, isn't it? That's the deceitfulness of sin. When stuff happens in the midst of life, how do we respond? See, what the reason God took them this way, the reason God did this, he says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, was to humble them. You can find this in Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 through 5. To humble them and to test what was in their heart. But rather than being humbled, they grumbled 
can't put God to the test. And so you're really here. Do you really love us? Are your promises really true? You said you were going to deliver us, but are you? It doesn't seem like that. Send us back. And so we have to understand the ways of God. We have to understand in the course of life, he takes us places where there's no food. He takes us places where there's no water. He takes us places where there's um, enemies around us and coming towards us. And he does that to humble us, to see what's in our heart. Are we going to trust him? Are we going to grumble against him? Are we going to trust him? Are we going to go another way? And so the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, I've seen this before. Don't do what they did. They had all this experience with God. They had professed their faith and said, oh yeah, we'll follow God. This is really cool. Let's get out of Egypt. But then when they got into the places that God led them, they began to grumble. They weren't humbled. And, and so rather than follow him, they they lost it. They drifted away. Their profession wasn't really true. What was really in their hearts was evidenced. And the author of Hebrews is saying to them, to us, keep on. Hold fast. The promises are true. It really is eternal life that he's promised you. I know it's a tough place, but that's just the deceitfulness of sin that's wanting to turn you away. Don't let it. Because if it does, you won't escape. But he says that knowing that if you're a believer, You'll hear that and return. So now the question for the author of Hebrews is, what will affect that return? What will affect uh, getting us to repent and to turn back? Because you see, his purpose isn't to make us unsure about our salvation. His purpose is to make make sure that we persevere to the end. And so he's saying, what will affect that? Well, a couple of things, one which we'll consider next week in this text, which is that we need to exhort everybody all the time. We need to talk to each other all the time about Christ. But the second thing is, of course, he says, consider consider Jesus. And we have an opportunity to consider Jesus this morning here in this sacrament at this table. And the question I want to put before you as we come is this one. Should those who doubt, should those who struggle with faith come to this table? Should those who doubt, and those who struggle with faith, come to this table? And I want someone else to answer this for me. I want some old dead guys to answer this for me. They raised the question in the first place, 17th century, uh, those who wrote the Westminster Larger Catechism. Question 172. Let me read the question. It says, May one who doubts of his being in Christ or his due preparation come to the Lord's Supper? When he asked that question, they were asking a very real question about those who doubt and struggle in faith or who don't think they're prepared enough to come to this table. Here's the answer they gave. I'm going to have to play with this a bit because it's old dead guy language. is a little cumbersome, but I'll clean it up as we move along. They said, one who doubts of his being in Christ or his due preparation to the sacraments of the Lord's Supper may have due interest in Christ, though he be not yet assured thereof. That is, just because you doubt and struggle in faith doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It just simply means, may mean that you lack the assurance of it. Because you see, the assurance of it is a subjective thing. There's all kinds of things that can come into play into a person's life and cause us at a moment in time to doubt whether we have a true interest in Christ. It may be at the moment we look at our sin and the deceitfulness of sin comes and says, oh, how could you be a Christian? Do that. 
There may be a circumstance of life that comes that's very, very hard. And you begin to question and wonder, how could this happen? Why would God? That doesn't, in and of itself, mean you're not a believer. It just means at the moment you may not have assurance. And so as the table is set and the invitation is given, you say, should I come? They're saying, well, hang on for a moment. It may well be that in the midst of that you have a true interest in Christ. He says, one who doubts of being in Christ or his due preparation of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper may have true interest in Christ, though he be not yet assured thereof. And in God's account, actually has it. If he be duly affected with the apprehension of the want of it. Old dead guy language means that in God's account you really have it if you really want it. If you're sitting there going, oh, I know I struggle, but I really do know I'm lost without this. This is my hope. And and I understand that I've struggled and I've doubted and all that, but I really am lost without this. Even though it's painful for me even to consider Christ at the moment, and even though there's anger in my own heart, yet I know this is true. If he be truly affected with the apprehension of the wants of it and and unfeignedly desires to be found in Christ, that is the heart's desire, I really do want to be found in Christ and to depart from iniquity. In which case, because promises are made and this sacrament is is appointed for the relief even of weak and doubting Christians. I mean, why did Jesus give us the sacrament in the first place? Why did he say, come? He said, come to remember me, to consider me, same message as the author of Hebrews. To remember me, to consider me. Why? Because he knows that in our consideration of him, our faith is enhanced. Our faith is improved. Our faith is strengthened. That's how it happens. Our faith isn't strengthened by avoiding thinking about Jesus. Our faith is strengthened by not only thinking about him, but in the mystery of this table and coming to him because he is here. And he says... In which case, because promises are made and the sacrament is appointed for the relief and of weak and doubting Christians, he, that is the person coming, she, is to bewail his unbelief. You're allowed to wail if you want, but you may want to do it more quietly. We are Presbyterians. They were too, but bewail was different in those days. But as you understand that your unbelief and, and, and you, like the person who came to Jesus, says, I believe would help me in my unbelief. And you're one who's willing to labor to have his doubts resolved, that is, to pray, to come to this table. In so doing, he may ought to come to the Lord's Supper, that he might be further strengthened. The quick answer is, to one who is shrouding and struggling in faith, should you come to this table? Yes. Because where else will you have your faith strengthened? That's what it's for. That's why it's here. Because Jesus is here, you see. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Think about me when you do this. Consider me. Consider everything about me in the same way. He took the cup, and again, after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. That is, when the deceitfulness of sin comes to your mind, come to this table, come to the Lord Jesus and say, but, 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 Jesus died for me. 
And when the deceitfulness of sin comes and says the world offers way more than Jesus would ever offer, you say to the world, prove it. This is how he proved it. That the Father did not spare his own Son, but he gave him up for us all. Will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Isn't this proof enough of his love and even our inclusion in him? And so he says, come to this table. Because Jesus is here. This isn't just something we tack on to the end of a service once a month. This is something that we believe in the mystery of God's work in our lives. That Jesus is here. This bread and juice is bread and juice. It doesn't change. It's just bread and juice. But because Christ has invited us here and invited us to come and said we're to think upon him, we trust that he's here. And in a way that's different than any other way, he says, come on, by faith feed on me. And people say, Bill, how's that work? And my answer is, I don't know. I just do it. Because Jesus said to. And I trust that as we do it, that our faith will be strengthened. Let's pray. Father, you've given us our Lord Jesus, and he has given us these elements. I pray you set them apart in a way that causes us to think upon him, consider him deeply. And that as we come, and as we take, that the deceitfulness of sin will be unmasked. And we'll see the greatness of Christ. From the weakest in faith among us, to the strongest in faith among us, Understanding, of course, that the strongest is the weakest. And our faith will be increased. And we will be enabled by your grace and by the presence of Christ in us to hold on. To hold to the original confession firm to the end. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord, and he invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope, except in his sovereign mercy, meaning your hope is in him, and that you believe and depend upon Jesus as he is offered to us in the gospel, and that it's your heart's desire, struggling though you may be, to live in such a way that fits being called a follower of Christ. Thus, let me ask uh, these two sections to come down this aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and just simply affirm in your own mind, I believe. Please come.